You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. The evening where you join us on your favorite program, Legal Talk and Alhamdulillah, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, whatever you do in life, you know, things happen, uh, you uh, you met with an accident, oh, I'm going to call, I'm legal wise, I'm going to call my lawyers, or, uh, you know, someone is born and, uh, you know, all these things, though, you're winding up your estate and someone make parada from the dunya. Uh, your go-to man is always the yeah the lawyer, the attorney, the advocate, and many family members that do have an attorney in the family or a lawyer. But alhamdulillah, in the ummah, when we have a, a attorney and a hafiz like uh, Muhammad Kubadia, attorney hafiz Muhammad Kubadia, then I would say he's a big asset to the ummah and he's someone that resonates so positively on the platforms of Amarka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Let me welcome him and the pious and sagacious ummah with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, Muhammad, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And it's as exciting to be this evening with you and your listeners as you are to be with me. So alhamdulillah for that. And yes, yes, yes. Looking forward to an exciting program this evening, bringing forth some legal and professional advice from our part of the world. No, alhamdulillah, Allah bless you for that, Muhammad. And you know, people, they we got a top issue, yeah. domestic issues and its legal effects. Hey, everywhere they say, hey, their neighbors are screaming. Man. Next year, the police van coming in and hey, the scuffle going. But before we get to that, Muhammad, it's that beautiful moment, you know, when you go to the airport. I mean, I was there uh, just uh, a few days ago and the hujaj all leaving, that atmosphere. And, you know, uh, I mean, the, the, the prices are exorbitant. But look at the amount of young hujaj that are leaving, the youngsters, so motivated, but prepared to spend in the path of Allah, to meet the Creator. I mean, we know Hajj is dead before death. But Muhammad, give me your take. Gee, so you aware that for many years I've had the opportunity to work with Sahuk and to work with some of the travel agents. So it gave me an opportunity to firstly, to do Islah and to do my Faraid and my other Hajjahs after that as well. And it was a great and humbling opportunity at the same time. You know, to be standing on the plains of Arafat is something that you will never forget. And like they say, my Hajibai, meaning my brother, who I spent so many weeks with, become lifelong partners. Today, people have a relationship only because they were together in Mina or Arafat or even a few days before that and after that during the journey. So, yes. The Hajj itself is a wonderful opportunity. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Maybe the days are gone by where we were fortunate enough to perform multiple Hajjahs. And people will tell you for under 3,000 rand or for under 5,000 rand or for under 10,000 rand, people were able to perform Hajj. That was the norm. Hajj was not expensive. Hajj was not excessive. In fact, South Africans on average between five and 7,000 people were going for Hajj in the 1990s. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. But things have changed. We're living in a difficult, a different political era. We're living in different financial times. And uh, it's now becoming extremely expensive for a person to go for Hajj. And this is, unfortunately, has made Hajj out of the reach of the vast majority of people. But to answer your question about the young crowd, I must tell you that something I observed is that it depends really which part of the world you come from and that would, di- that would identify mm. 
what type of haji you're going to get. So the Cape Town hajis are by and large elderly people. If you look at the dynamics and you think about it, you do an examination, not that you're not going to get the younger crowd, but generally in Cape Town, the tendency was people would save up money for many years. People would not prioritize it or not have an opportunity to go for Hajj, maybe because of the being employed and always being empl- not self-employed, always being employed to the extent that they need to take away six weeks. But yet the Cape Town Hajj's demographics is such he's elderly and he wants to go in first. So the vast majority of packages that get sold in Cape Town other early packages. People want to go in for six weeks. So as soon as the Hajj season starts in Dhulqa'da, already the first Hajjis are coming in and by and large, the vast majority of South Africans are coming from the Cape Town, Western Cape region. So understand that, number one. In contrast to the Johannesburg Haji, he sometimes has been for Umrah before. He sometimes... uh, Um, doesn't need to wait many years before he's able to pull his financial resources for himself and his spouse. He's also mostly uh, mostly employed and mostly or is in a good work situation where in the early part of his employment, he can take away a few weeks. And then also he doesn't then aim for the six-week package, although it's not unusual, but what I'm saying is the vast majority of valleys, Transvaal, the Gautengas like to go in for a shorter time, at least than four weeks, three weeks type of situation is more popular. Maybe they get homesick very easily. Maybe they miss the Dalen rice. Maybe they just, yeah. but the dynamics of that. And funny enough, it doesn't mean if you're going to go for a shorter period that you're going to uh, spend less money. Actually, the opposite is true because the people who go early into Mecca and Medina, when there is no real crowd, are paying basically off-peak prices for rooms. And as you get closer and closer to Hajj, as the days go by and the weeks go by, now you're finding that the prices are increasing. So you're coming into Medina, basically in the first week of the Qaeda, five weeks away from Hajj, they're coming into Medina, they're having a full week in Medina, they're living in the best hotels, and they're basically basically next to nothing because Medina is empty. And whether they're getting to do all their ziyarats, they're getting to do all their salams, they're going to visit all these places and they're getting all the opportunity to do it without the crowds of the people. So that is one advantage of going in early. It's that you have the opportunity to do your ibadahs and to sit in the roda and to do whatever you want to do undisturbed. And number two is that the prices are also very reasonable and very affordable. So when you get into Mecca, then what happens is the, uh, the crowds are starting to come into Medina and that pace picks up and Makkah then lags behind by about a week. So when you get into Makkah, similarly, everything is empty and everything is affordable and everything. So restaurants and dawafs and salah and all these things, you're getting the most best spots and you're getting prime of everything. And yet even the prices are very affordable. It's the most affordable because this is the quietest Makkah and Medina will be for the whole year. And then when the crowds start coming in, this is when now people decide from the 25th of Tilqaada or from the 1st of Ziraj to move out of Mecca and to go to Azizia. So Azizia, they charge you per bed. So in the hotels, in the baits that the people are using, they charge you per bed. And this is how the pricing is then structured. So whether you come from the last three days before Hajj or the last week or the last 10 days or last 15 days before Hajj and you're staying in Azizia, the price is per bed. 
and as a result of which now you find that uh, it's also very affordable because now you can spend long periods even in Azizia, even a 10 days in Azizia and not then over incur and over budget. So where does the costing come in? Why do are people paying over 100, 150,000 rand excluding FS? It's because a lot of the costs now are regarding the services that the Saudi government is offering and more especially during the five days of Hajj. People are paying for 30,000 rand a month, 30,000 rand a month, so that you can spend five days on Mina and on Arafat um, under the services of the Muassasa. And this is unfortunately has risen, catapulted, it has become extremely expensive. Over and above that is, of course, now because there's general sales tax and VAT in the kingdom and the hotels have become a bit more um, concerned about their bottom line than it was in the past, you're finding that prices have also escalated. And then when the agent then adds on a margin, a 10% margin, where he was adding on 30,000 rand a margin, now he's got to add on 100,000 rand a margin. So obviously his costs and his expenses and his consideration, his fees are going to increase appropriately. So at the end of the day, the net result after the tickets, tickets on average, I understand, are about 25,000 rand this year. And um, it's a huge amount of money to pay for a ticket. I don't think there's another ticket to anywhere on the plane on the planet that you would pay paying 25,000 rand for. So that in itself is disconcerting to think that today Hajj has become really for the rich. Even those people that are going are struggling to make that payment. Remember, that is not even the other things that the person would like to buy. The first time a person comes into Mecca and Medina, he spends a lot of money because he needs to buy gifts. He needs to go. He wants to go to the date market. He wants to buy a few kilos of dates. By the time he walks out of the date market, it was 5,000 rand. And let's be honest. I mean, it's 1,000 riyals. A person will spend 1,000 riyals in the date market at 80 rand a kilo, 100 rand a kilo. How much is he going to? 180 riyals, sorry, 80 riyals a kilo and 100 riyals a kilo. He's paying 300 rand, 400 rand for a kilo of dates. He buys 10 kilos. It's already 4,000 rand. Unheard of before. Unheard of that we had to spend such huge amounts of money. Previously, and I'm talking from now my experiences, a person could budget 10 riyals for a meal and two people would eat for 10 riyals. So that 10 riyals was a I, 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 I was, comp, was was sufficient per meal. If the hotel never gave you breakfast, you generally would consider an early late breakfast or early lunch. Maybe at about 11 o'clock, you could go down into a restaurant and have some paya for breakfast and lunch or some nice acne or whatever it was that you would eat in for 10 reals. And you find you only till, till, till the evening, you were basically uh, satiated and that you, you were comfortable till the evening. So two 20 reals a day was enough. Even worst case scenario, 30 reals a day was enough. And the person would generously be able to spend and do what he needed to do and come home. So the budgets in the early years and the budgets are now a chalk and cheese. That 150,000 rand you're spending now, you need to add another 50 to 100,000 rand just for your transports from Medina, from Mina to, to, to um, Mecca daily would cost you 50 reals, 100 reals at the time. You need to consider this, uh, and then you know you want to go shopping, or you want to go out, or you want to go see a few things. You want to buy a few gurtas. 
you're going to do it. It's your first time in the in the Haramein, and uh, the prices there are still cheaper than what you'd probably be playing locally. The quality is better, and you're in the hot season. You're in the vibe. You don't want to now minge on a few things. You want to experience everything, and um, unfortunately, it comes with the cost. And the costs have gone higher and higher. Like I said, 10 reals previously, 20 years ago, could buy you a meal. Today, you have to budget at least 200 rand per person if you want to have a meal in a restaurant. And that's how it's become. Global economy has has it had its impact, unfortunately, even in the Muslim countries. And we have to bear the cost. Our rand has not been commensurate to the global increase. In fact, every day we wake up, there's a new scare from 15 to 16 to 17 to 18 to 19 to 20 rand to the rand is what we have to consider and calculate currently at the moment. Jazakallah khaira for that, uh, Muhammad. And also, you know, whilst you're talking, I was thinking about, I mean, I got uh, maybe two or three friends uh, that are, mashallah, you know, businessmen that Allah has blessed. And you know what they do, Muhammad? Every year without fail, three members uh, of their staff, they will send for hajj. And the whole thing paid for. And then, uh, you know, this year I said, hey, how's it, man? How's it going? He said, chef, things are bad, but we still have to do it because that's the pledge we have with our maker. I mean, these individuals, uh, Muhammad, I'm sure you met many like them, but look at the heart they have. I mean, they won't tell everyone. I mean, they, you know, they are close to me. So they told me, but you must have met people like this. You know, they got people working for them, but... Uh, they got a wonderful, I mean, lovely factory running, good business. and But they make sure that they will send their Muslim staff. Hajj, Muhammad, your comment. You know, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, that is one of the stories. And, you know, I we, 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 we hear of the stories. We've seen it practical, practically. Yes, there are some people whose magnanimity, whose charity have excelled. And Allah reward them for every rand that they spend in the service of this deen. And Hajj being one of the five pillars of Islam, it's very important that the trend and the tradition and these types of habits are inculcated in future generations. You know, the older generation would send money to India every month. They'll take away, take out their five pounds. Today we have a new generation. We wonder to ourselves, does anybody even take out a 500 rand for the family in India? So we make dua that continues. In so many other ways, in so many other ways, we find that the, it actually transpires and comes through. For example, when we used to go for the Hajj, we'll find the people in South Africa would send money and say, you know what, tell the people on Arafat, buy them cold rings, here's 10,000 bucks, buy uh, as many people as you can, South African, non-South African, use this money, here's 20,000 rand. When the Hajjis come to Azizia, Please cook for them and feed them. It's on us, it's on our family, it's on our business. We want to do this, we've been doing it. Allah reward them because me and you don't know their names. We will never be able to, you know, to. to it's not even, it's not even, um, uh, they, the name, their names should not even be mentioned because it is something that they would not prefer. But at the end of the day, Allah knows who it is and what uh, effort and what service. And yet, we've, we also hear the stories of people who come for Hajj and they say, you know, moment. A year ago, I put my name, and a year ago, I had no money. And when my name came up six months later, I thought to myself, how am I going to afford it? And out of the blue, I got a call, and a person says, is your name on the list? Alhamdulillah, I was waiting for this day. Here's 50,000, here's 100,000, here's your ticket paid for, here's everything paid for, here's the money into the account. We hear that stories. So you know what? 
it goes back it goes back you make the intention and allah will open up the, uh, the way the verse in the quran says that the person who places his yakin and places his complete reliance of allah allah will find a way for it to become a success no, Alhamdulillah, I'm going to share a story with you whenever you come on. You always have a knack of taking me back, way back. It was Ahmad D that, uh, you know, he had in his earlier years uh, when he ran the uh, uh, IPCI in Ajmeri Arcade, or Madrasa Arcade, was it? Ajmeri Madrasa, I'm forgetting now. But uh, there he had a bookkeeper named Mr. Khan. Now, Mr. Khan used to do all his... Uh, uh, you know, paperwork, book work, and this and that. And uh, subsequently, when uh, D that moved on to the new buildings, I think uh, Mr. Khan worked for about a year or so, and then uh, he retired. And one day, I remember bumping into the late Mr. Khan in the streets, and he told me, you know, Shafat, I went for Hajj last year. I said, oh, mashallah, how beautiful. But he said, you know who paid for my Hajj? I said, no, I don't know. He said, you know what, Mrs. D that she took out a, Here's some money from under her mattress. She put it in my hand and she said, there's your Hajj money. And I couldn't believe it. You know, it was this, um, uh, I, I used to call her Mahawa, Allah fill her dur. And, you know, there was Mahawa in a simple manner. She saved money to give it to, you know, uh, her husband's bookkeeper to go for Hajj. I mean, I was so touched. And I, you know, I subsequently went and uh, told her. She said, no, 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 don't tell everyone. But uh, Mr. Khan had subsequently told me. And this is it, you know, uh, Didat and them came from a very poor background. But look at the intention the old lady had, uh, Muhammad. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. These are the types of stories that fits into every community. It's happening across the nation and possibly across the world. South Africans have been known for their charity and alhamdulillah, Allah com- con- continues to increase it. And this was be something that we must inculcate in the youth. Tomorrow, if somebody needs to go for Hajj, Make it, and whatever it, and not everybody is going to be able to afford 100,000 rand as a donation, as a sponsorship. But even if it's just a thousand rand, that thousand rand will be able to assist and help people when they come to the other side. At the same time, at the same time, you know, it's, everything comes with a proviso. At the same time, I think one thing that is lacking is the training and understanding about budgeting and managing your money in the kingdom. And I'm saying this why. Because a lot of times people are traveling overseas and it's their first trip. They're going for Hajj, but it's their first trip that they're leaving the country. So with that, they do not understand the dynamics of foreign currency and how to spend and how to budget. Because when you're in another part of the world and you run short of money, it's not as easy as just phoning home and saying, listen, I need money because they need to get the money through to you. And these things also some cause maybe this is something for next year some cause needs to be dished out to potential hajis about managing and budgeting your resources and maybe even saving your money so that when you're going into before you're leaving for hajj you already have a plan about your finances and a budget and some way that i've got so many thousand dollars i'm going to use it so many thousand dollars appropriately i need to make sure that these certain things i must buy i must buy for example, to get some Zamzam water, no matter what I spend, but nowadays it's free. But in the early years, we would obviously have that uh, provisions, 
space in the bag or we make a, a, a get get our zamzam ready for departure you never used to get it at airport so you needed to get it in mecca you needed to buy the dates you needed to buy uh, some of the essentials that the person normally buys when he goes to mecca and medina so that is something you need to do and then in terms of spending now you know do you how much is a good price to be paying for a thobe for a kurta should a person be spending 50 riyals or 500 riyals depends on your budget depends on if the sometimes you know it's cheaper to just buy it at home in certain products and certain things because people are importing it in container full instead of carrying it all the way and then you're coming and then the product cannot be exchanged or returned you know in the early years we used to buy a lot of electronic things and you know uh, like for example radios or tvs or dvds or sorry those years as video recorders because it was outrageously priced in south africa because number two is that the maka medina used to get the best electronic things so people would buy these things, beautiful radio sets, you know. Some of you are listening on the radio station, but in the early years, the radio was like the center of a family household, and people would come there and look for nice things, uh, top names, and decent prices, and the rand was strong. You will remember that the rand at one stage was stronger than the dollar. They say something was like mm. two rands to the dollar. So yes, we really... Um, Sorry, one rain and two dollars. What was it? Something like that. But whatever the case is, the rain was yeah, stronger. Uh, than the I dollar. think it was a uh, seventy-five cents uh, to one dollar. Yeah. Wow. You know, so we would go, and everything would be extremely cheap. People would go away for four months and six months, and they would say that the budget that I took was five hundred rands, and I went to go, mm. you know, by spending money for six months was five hundred rand, and then, uh, so so that was the 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 financial situation and Allah made it so easy for the people in that regard. Although on the other hand, we couldn't just jump onto a plane and go. In the earlier years, you needed to go a whole month's journey on a boat before you get to Mecca and Medina. Then you're going to spend four months there. And while you're there, you might as well just visit Cairo. And while you're there, you're going to visit Jerusalem and Syria and Lebanon. You know, that was now the, the, the Paris of the, of the Middle East in those years. It was such beautiful places that the people would come back with beautiful stories about the state of economy and how beautiful the masjids are. So we would sit in awe and wonder how beautiful it really is. And they would come back and the whole trip would be a six-month exercise. So yes, we have it differently today. Today people get visas and overnight they're traveling. But on the other hand, you know, it costs a lot of money to be able to do that and to be able to spend and budget you know, Muhammad, uh, what you're talking about, and, uh, you know, I know many, many uh, hujjaj, especially the elderly in uh, the early years, uh, were exploited by uh, the, uh, you know, the tour operators. And uh, these poor people, some of them lost uh, so much of money, they had to be helped out in the Holy Lands by maybe some friends and some relatives uh, that uh, helped them out to, you know, get back into the footing. And these exploiting, uh, you know, t- uh, tour operators used to do it over and over and over again. But, uh, you know, fast-tracking and coming to uh, uh, our times now, uh, how safeguarded are our elderly who judge? Uh, are they given the guarantee, you know, don't worry, no one will exploit you this time? Uh, Muhammad? Yes, so, you know, I, I can maybe talk from a position of when I was a volunteer at Sahuk and legal advisor to Sahuk. I think we had already understood by now as the Hajis that every travel agent must go through verification and vetting and they must meet SAUC's requirements. And one of the requirements is that certain guarantees, financial guarantees need to be put in place. Certain codes of conduct need to be put into place. 
And by and large, I must tell you, the vast majority of travel agents did their best. Some made money and some lost money. Let's be honest about it. Some travel agents would even pay from their pockets in order to facilitate and make sure that the person charge was done. And yet there's two sides to every coin. On the other side, you found that there were sometimes dozens of hajis. They would sit, be sitting on the stairs of a hotel. You would go there and like, what's happening, auntie? Why are you sitting on the stairs? No, the hotel says there's no bookings. So where's the travel agent? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? He's supposed to be a... I don't know. You come to find out he took thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of rands of Haji's money, either never paid or he absconded and never bothered to, to, to honor any part of the contract or he partially uh, honors the contract and buys them plane tickets and tell them here's a confirmation number and they end up in Mecca and Medina and there's no confirmation numbers. So the Saudi government must have been experiencing it every year or ad nauseum because they then decided that certain protocols need to be put into place and they will jail you in Saudi Arabia if they find you guilty of these types of offenses. There's a Hajj ministry, Wizaratul Hajj, that specifically takes care of the needs of the Hajjis. So any Hajji that goes into the kingdom now and he finds that he has not been given what he's promised, one call to the Wizaratul Hajj, and they speak English as well, um, you know, so, 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 but this is the, the, the service that they provide. So they would come to your hotel they would ask you to give information, some confirmations, some itineraries, whatever he's got about the travel agents and what he's promised you. They will call the travel agent up and the travel agent must be represented there. At the end of the day, the mission is also is also representative of the whole body and the mission is then called and the travel agent can be jailed and you know he, there's financial consequences to his things. So people are more scared, people are more conscious, people are more honorable. I think the ref ref and that type of uh, business has actually been removed. So Alhamdulillah, I'm sure you haven't heard about an incident like this for many years. I too, it's because of the efforts of all the role players in this industry that they are able to play a part so that at the end of the day, nobody gets scammed about the Hajj. Now, well said there, Muhammad, and uh, mashallah, giving us a powerful information indeed. And then, you know, it's hot season and uh, the hujjaj are going in uh, by the droves, alhamdulillah. And then uh, we also know that uh, this place called uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, they are the custodians of the two holy mosques. But they're also now opening up uh, tourism to the whole world. I mean, you can see uh, the Indian market, they targeting and they, uh, you know, welcoming them by I believe Indians are getting into that part of the world by the thousands too. Um, during Hajj, I don't know if you have any inside information, uh, but are these, uh, you know, we, we already saw uh, videos on uh, mainstream media where, you know, non-Muslims have got in there and, you know, said, look, I'm a non-Muslim and I'm walking in front of, uh, you know, uh, the Prophet's mosque and so forth and this and that and some by the Kabatullah and all that. Hajj time, what happens? Uh, non-Muslims, uh, you know, can they blanket them out or you will find some of them trying their tricks again now, Mohammed? Gee, it's a sad, sad state of affairs to today to find that a non-Muslim is able to use our holy sites as holiday destinations. And I don't think anybody in their sane mind can ever find any justification for this. What we considered to be holy, we already considered to be the holy places to our religion has absolutely no value to them. At the end of the day, it's a tourist site, and we ourselves as Muslims, if we, 
And then Allah tells us in the Quran, that he who honors the signs, the sha'ir of Allah, the manifestations of Allah in these things, verily that is from the uh, 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 it is from taqwa of the heart. So yes, we have high level of respect for these holy sites. But what level of respect does a non-Muslim have? And today also, we must consider very carefully that um, that, that, that these people, they pollute our, our, our sanctified places. These people come and there's a level of disrespect. Hair is uncovered with the women or the, the clothing is inappropriate. When you go into a church, at least, you know, in the early years, you go into a church, you need to respect it. When you, uh, when you go to some of these sites or something, you know there's an element of respect associated with it. And we demand respect in our holy sites. And it's so sad to see that today it has become so. Alhamdulillah, Makkah till today is being protected and non-Muslims are allowed. And I, I hope and pray this is in perpetuity. And unfortunately, Marina has become now a tourist destination. And we should make dua that Allah removes this evil and it comes back to normality. It is fact the fervent dua of Nabi Sallallahu that the Jews and the Christians should be expelled from the Arabian Peninsula. And because of this, we cry inside. We lament about what is happening in the in the Haramain and in Al Jazeera Al Arab. And the Jazeera Al Arab don't know does it, it's not only Makkah and Medina. It's all those other places like Dubai and Riyadh and Jeddah where the partying and the merrymaking and all these things happen and we, we, we lament for that. But at the same time, Shafat, you know, there's the proviso coming in again. And the proviso is what lesson is there for us as Muslims? Today we are going into Mecca and Medina, but what's happening? Today is becoming a photo-taking session, a selfie session. Everybody is taking photographs of their achievements, and they're taking and they're showcasing what they're doing. I managed to get into the Roda, so boom, 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 photos there. I managed to do a tawaf in 10 minutes, boom, boom, boom. I'm, I'm having this, I'm eating this, I'm going to this jabal, and I'm going this on this tour, and I'm doing all of this. We've become tourists. We've become tourists in Mecca and Medina today. We want to showcase what we do to the extent that there's pride in what we've done. The whole world must look at it. There's the issue of the evil eye. Nabi Sallallahu said the al-ayn haq meaning that the evil eye is the truth. People are looking and they may be jealous innocently. Sometimes people can cast an evil eye innocently and other people would suffer the consequences of an evil eye. People would get sick people would not be able to appreciate uh, the Hajj in full because they are too busy now taking selfies, they're sitting in front of the Kaaba and everybody must see that they're reading Quran and they're making big, big duas. Let's be honest. Is that lesson? There's a lesson for this for us as well. And a believer looks at these things and he thinks to himself, what lesson, the fact Mecca and Medina means that it's opened up, what am I doing? Let me go in there, let me do my Hajj, let me get maximum out of the short time that I'm there. Let me come out of there without facade, without fighting, without unnecessarily getting involved in things that do not uh, interest me, without making it into a political circus at the same time. Yes, me and you, we sit here and we, we talk about MBS and the political circus in Saudi Arabia. So be it. People who go there must concentrate on the ibadat, 
Don't get involved in the politics is what I tell them. Don't get involved what the Saudis are doing and what the Pakistanis are doing and what the Ahmadiyas are doing. And just, just forget all those stories. Go in. It's about your self-reformation. Allah's not going to ask you about MBS and what the politics is in that country at the time when you went. He's going to ask you about the time that you spent Makkah, Medina and the five days of Hajj. Well, yes, uh, Muhammad, they are giving you his uh, viewpoint there. Don't focus on others and say they, 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 they focus on yourself. He that knows his heart, he knows himself. And he that knows himself, he knows his Lord. And, you know, remind me of Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Far, far, far away from the maddening crowd. There he was in the cave of Hira, contemplation, you know, and uh, Alhamdulillah getting wahi there. And then there was a proper time for him to go and spread the message. But as you say, uh, the generations that are coming, even old people taking selfies of themselves and uh, yeah, selfies uh, becoming narcissists or becoming hedonistic. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, your focus should be Allah, the Kaabatullah, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this Kaabatullah is directly under the arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, in yesteryear, the people had the time. If you spoke to each, uh, you know, Haji, he will give you a different story and how he, uh, you know, felt how the Kaabatullah was. I remember the late advocate, I am Bawa, telling me, you know, in his, uh, uh, you know, Queen's English, you know, Shafath, when I went there, I was just stunned. And I sat down one corner and I looked into the skies and there were these uh, pigeons or these doves and they went round and round, but they didn't fly over the Kaabatullah. That made a profound impression on me. Now, Muhammad, today, I don't know these guys when they look up there, they'll see the tower clock or they'll see McDonald's there and they'll see uh, KFC calling them the other end and say, hey, I'm going for a Nando's. Talk to me, Muhammad. <laughs> So at the end of the day, I think we're all human. We're all susceptible. These businesses ah. are there because we support them. The KFC hey. is there for the last yeah. 40 years Looks because like you we want support them. Hey. You're going for a chicken, my man. Yes, okay, yes, talk. yes. <laughs> well, well I, I remember in the early years, you wouldn't find these outlets except in Azizia. So after 10 days, I'll have a Haji comes up to me and says, you know what, I heard there's a pizza hut in Azizia. So uh, if you get a taxi for us, because I speak Arabic, you, you know, people would uh, utilize my services and I get a free chow. So it's one hand washes the other. So if after Isha, if you can arrange a taxi, take me to this pizza hut, we're going to chow till we can't walk. I say, sort it out, you know, number one, I'm there. And we do that. So the reality is, the situ- is that, you know, people's nature is such that we, from time to time, want to Im- enjoy and appreciate and these types of things. And today we've coming into, you know, it's how how would you say we've coming into an international arena that we understand the franchises. We understand even though Burger King was not in this country until recently, Burger King has been in Saudi Arabia for as long as I can remember. I knew what Burger King's burger tasted like. And yes, it was something I've, in Mecca when I was in Mecca. It's something what I enjoy and appreciate. So we're living in a, in a, in a, in a, in, in a world now that today we're just so uh, influenced by these types of things. It's difficult to say, you know. They, 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 do we go and we, if we tell the haji, you know, don't go and eat at these places, he's not going to listen to you and you don't have a right as supposed to tell him at the end of the day. So it's up to everybody. What I do must was that proper Pakistani restaurants where you would sit down 
and you would buy that uh, chicken, the, the dal gauze, or the dal and rice, and the chicken tikkas, you buy and you enjoy, and you lick your fingers, and you have it with a Pepsi for one real, and the whole meal will cost you 10 reals plus one real, 11 reals, and that was how, what we really enjoyed. Those restaurants have actually been replaced by these modern franchises, you know, and, and um, unfortunately, this is what the youth want nowadays. Today, you, uh, you know from your diet in your own home, in your, with your parents, they wouldn't even consider eating out. Now you, you make way for the children, you, you strike a deal, okay, Friday night, Saturday, mommy's not going to cook, so Friday night, Saturday, it's eating out. Nowadays, the new generation, it's like the wives don't cook anymore. So eating out is becoming, forget, once a day, it's like twice a day nowadays that the, 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 the diets, you know, the, the household, the average household has now changed. It's now, and, and, and let's be honest, uh, it's not very expensive today if you look at what it costs for a meal to cook or to buy the ingredients and the time and the effort and to just go out and eat. Um, you know, there, there seems to be some parity, like in the States. In fact, in the States, they say that it's cheaper to buy a McDonald's meal than to try to recreate that McDonald's meal. So, yes, we're living in different times and the situation is going to get worse. We're finding that malls and these types of lifestyles and the shopping and everything He's becoming now the the, 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 the the average lifestyle. So we have to then consider that, that we're thinking from a Zamana time. We're thinking about oh, from a previous generation. We're dealing with the new generation now that, that comes to these places. Yeah, Mohammed, uh, moving on and uh, getting into our uh, topic, uh, proper domestic issues and its uh, legal effects. But, uh, you know, earlier uh, this week, uh, you know, I had a letter from uh, a, a gentleman and he says assalamu alaikum my brother shafat please do not mention my name with all these uh, mixed uh, signals coming through from world governments and uh, the syllabus of uh, schools being changed our, our children being a uh, programmer uh, to go on uh, the uh, other side of things uh, that is uh, not even a sharia compliant sometimes it hits my mind and sometimes i ask the question i've posed this to many of our ulama friends you know what is it good to marry in this zamana or not to marry? I know marriage is a sunnah, but with these devils at the hem, what shall we do? Uh, you know, Muhammad, I, I mean, I've, I've sent this uh, to quite a few of my alim friends. Legally, legally, how would you advise, uh, Muhammad? Let me just understand the nature of the question. So the devils at the helm that he's referring to specifically, what did you understand of that? Yeah, with all this... Uh, you know, the yoke system coming in and they tell the kids, uh, yeah, you can decide whether you're a boy or a girl. <laughs> and uh, I mean, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, yeah. all of a sudden you're in the toilet, you don't know whether the girl says, I'm a boy. <laughs> and the boy <laughs> says, I'm a girl. And, you know, today they say, I mean, same-sex marriages. I mean, they're allowing that in church. You can see what's happening, you know, uh, woman marrying woman, man marrying man. I mean, all this has changed. So, uh, you know, when it comes to, I think this individual, yeah, is more scared of uh, the repercussions of uh, maybe having children and that the children will succumb to this uh, valueless system. Uh, I read it that way. How do you read it, Mohammed? Yeah, if that's what the question is trying to ask, then yes, then we, let's, let's try to consider what he's saying. Let's be honest about it. We shouldn't be shooting ourselves in the foot because of everybody else. The world is fluid. Other religious religions are fluid. They're constantly changing to accommodate it, its adherence. Islam, on the other hand, is al-yawmak, maltu lakum dinakum. This day, this religion, 1400 years ago, 
this religion was perfect. And we have to put things in perspective that that verily to get married is from the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It's not compulsory, but yes, it's the nature of such that it prevents you from so much of fitna and fasad. The nature of marriage is such, it's that it's natural and it's human for men to get married to a woman and not any other way. So that is the coming from the Islamic perspective. Putting things from a legal perspective. What used to be illegal in the past is legal. Mm. Adultery was criminally charged until the last, the early part of the century. That means if they found Mr. ABC with Mr. X, Mrs. XYZ, somebody else's wife, there was criminal sanctions imposed on the person. He would get arrested. He would have to face the magistrate. He may have to spend a few days or a few weeks, whatever the sentence was, in jail. And that was what it was when there was morality and chastity in the community. Now, today, we find that what was previously considered to be haram is now considered to be halal. So there's an Arabic term for this. I don't think in English there's a term like that. So Arabic is very unique. And it's Arabic has this term for it. It's called istihlal. That means it is when something that was previously haram has now become halal. So this is unfortunately the reality of all the other religions. What was previously very difficult for the people now, because the adherents complain, is very easy. There are many, we're looking at, specifically we're looking at now the LGBT, I think, and we need to be careful because as much as, you know, uh, we have the Islamic position, today we have to consider things from the dunya position. As a Muslim, there is always an element of ikra and hate and bara from these types of issues. So as a Muslim, we always got to distance ourselves from anybody that condones or sanctions these types of things. From a legal perspective, the morality is changing, it's fluid. Has it has the ability to change the mentality of people. Law has the ability to change the mentality of people. So if something is illegal or it's banned, then what happens is the mentality of the people is such that we must refrain from it. So for example, until a few years ago, uh, Dacha was uh, banned. So the mentality is the vast majority of people abstain from it. And then when they unban it, suddenly it became socially acceptable and then there was nothing wrong with it and suddenly, you know, it became a social thing. So look how the mentality changed regarding one issue. Adultery, similarly. When it was banned, I suppose it was undercover, but definitely of a lesser rate than what it was. Now we have this LGBT. And I've read so many opinions and I can only say that some people propagate that some People may have natural tendencies towards the same sex, but even if that is the case, which I don't subscribe to, but I'm trying to be fair and say I don't know because I've never been, alhamdulillah, I've never been faced with a challenge. But even if that is the case, Islam still makes it haram for you. In the same way that a person reverts to Islam and he deems I lust for wine. You know what, sometimes I just want to have a bottle of wine because when I was a Christian, it would soothe so much of my problems. Yes, you may have those feelings, but what do you do as a Muslim? You protect yourself against these types of thoughts and you pray to Allah that he gives you istikama and strength in these types of issues. So yes, even if a person has those tendencies, we as Muslims, we need to 
dislike it. There needs to be some sort of distance between us and those people. Those people that are promoting it, we remove ourselves from their company, lest we befall or it, we befall the same type of punishment that is written out for them. So, living and bringing children up in today's day and age is necessary. And it, you're going to find these types of challenges. But you know what? As a parent, as the head of the household, as the father or the mother, you have an obligation to warn your children. Save yourself and your families from the fire of Jahannam. Because if it's not this challenge, it's going to be another challenge. If it's not LGBT, then it's going to be bestiality. This is the type of things that we are coming, we're faced with. And you're going to find all these things that right in today's day and age, I don't know how safe it is to send your child to a public school anymore. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned that it's becoming socially acceptable in so many ways that six-year-olds are, are, are identifying themselves to be genderless or to be homosexual. Are you talking about polluting the mind of a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, even a 12-year-old with these types of mentalities when you're looking at what clothes is being sold, what books are being published, what uh, exposure the children are having, school, out of school, shopping malls. So it's, it's definitely challenging. But to the questioner, my response is, do not ever let these types of thoughts enter your mind. Islamically, we should have consider getting married because it's a sunnah. We must have an intention to have lots of children because at the end of the day, they will be the ones making dua for us. At the end of the day, we want big families in Jannah as well. We want to spend millions of years with our children and we want to enjoy the, their company. And Allah is the one that decrees. We just make these small intentions and we hope that Allah makes uh, answers our way to us. Zakalakhay for that, uh, Muhammad. And you know, let's uh, focus on uh, domestic issues and its uh, legal effects. And as you said, you know, adultery was uh, forbidden, and there were laws. Uh, you know, you are uh, actually incarcerating people that uh, you know perpetrated those acts. But today, when you look at uh, the domestic issues and uh, what's happening, uh, uh, you know, GBV and so forth, it seems as if uh, you know the law is uh, is quite stringent. But still, you find this incidence of a GBV, you know, happening all the time. Uh, the killings. Uh, South Africa has become uh, the killing capital or the murder capital of the world, and so forth. Uh, how would you say that uh, you know domestic issues and uh, you know the legalities? Uh, you know, is it still on a uh, on, 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 on a plane or a level field like before, or has it taken a twist and a turn where? Many of the males are complaining that, uh, you know, domestic issues, the court favors the female over the male, even if he gets bashed by a female, uh, Mohammed. Gee, gender-based violence is unfortunately a huge reality in our community. And it's, the, it's you know, it's it's been swept under the carpets in so many instances. It's become unfair because nobody would love or nobody would even consider or want be, to be part of a family where violence is taking place. And they say that viol violence is a cycle. That means you see your parents in violent relationships. Automatically, the children then become victims or they become perpetrators of violence in their own family. 
sorry, and like that, the cycle of violence then continues. Yes, we have a huge problem. And when you look at the reasons for gender-based violence, it's usually accompanied by what? Alcohol. It's usually accompanied by drugs. It's usually accompanied by the tools of shaitan. Now, we're not saying that Muslims are perfect. Yes, yes, we understand that we have our rotten apples. We understand that we're all sinners. We understand that we all have our weaknesses. But alhamdulillah, by and large, we do not have the added zulam and the added disadvantage of alcohol in the community. By and large, we are a sober nation. By and large, because we are a sober nation, we are not uh, we, we do not expose ourselves and our families to these types of evils. I must be honest, we hear it in other communities. We hear it that the fathers are having a relationship with two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, and they get drunk and they're unable to control it. Why? Because we know Astaghfirullah, they read it about Lut salam and how he got drunk and he was busy with his daughters. I'm saying this, you know, with my head hanging in shame. But unfortunately, this is what they read and this is what they learn and this is what they, they, they subject their children to and this has become the norm in their communities. We as Muslims, Allah does not use such such examples or brings forth such parables and such stories because it's furthest from the truth. And we do not expose ourselves to these types of stories because we don't want to climatize ourselves to these types of thinking. But unfortunately, in other communities, it's happening. So yes, I don't believe that enough is being done. I believe that the law needs to come down stronger. I, I believe that victims need to be considered more carefully in these types of things. And sometimes we're not, you know, we, we're brushing it off as being uh, too lenient or too, the, the sentence is not, uh, is not appropriate. It's too mild. These types of things need to be put in. But first thing I think this country should consider very carefully is ban alcohol and you'll see how much of this these crimes have been reduced. We've seen it, a twinkling of which was exposed to us during the COVID era. We've seen some of the goodness come out in having a community that's unable to drink. And today, you know, they treat they treat alcohol like it's absolutely nothing. They'll ban or they'll, you know, ban smoking in so many places, but alcohol is freely can be a person can imbibe wherever and whenever he wishes. You know, this is some of the fallacies, fallacies and the misunderstandings that we have in the community. But yes, we're living in a community that's Christian-dominated, and we have to then, you know, toe the line in terms of now sukut, making, having silence in so many issues, and just turning a blind eye to other issues. At the end of the day, what can we do? We are not the hukumat, we are not the government, we're not the king, we're not the pri president or the prime minister. We're unable to meet out Islamic law and Sharia law. We're able to have ikra and para in our heart and distance ourselves from some of these sins so that Allah can protect us at the very least. Yeah, G. Muhammad, you talk about uh, Lut alayhi salam and ma'azallah, you know, about the incest, uh, Genesis 19 verses 33 to 35. And that night, both the door, I will, okay, I'll leave it out. I don't want to read the whole thing out here because, you know, the, that really taught me well there. But the, these <laughs> are the, 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 the stories that you see that comes through. And, uh, you know, I remember there was a court case and uh, one of those guys that perpetrated this and he quoted this uh, verse to the judge and he says, there's my inspiration. And what do you think the verdict was, uh, Muhammad? Take a guess. The verdict was that you're guilty because no judge is going to listen to the words of the Bible. In fact, I mean, 
I always tell these Christian uh, 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 apologists, next time just tell the guy, tell the Kremlin court that you don't, you can't sentence me. Jesus already um, took my son away, you know. So Jesus already died for my son. So mm. why do we have courts? Why do we have sentencing and punishment and all that? Common Christian understanding is Jesus dies for your sins, so you're free to have sexual relations with your dog also. And um, Jesus died for your sins. Unfortunately, this is the warp mentality of the other nations. Allah has given us guidance. Allah has given us Isa. Allah has given us all the goodness of this world that we have the ability to be able to rationally apply our minds to these types of things that we can hold our head up with pride and say, Islam is the only true religion that exists on the face of this earth. Yeah, Muhammad, and, uh, you know, really, I have to uh, really compliment uh, Molana Arafat and uh, Mufti A.K. Hussein. Uh, you know, lots and lots of uh, people have reverted to Islam by listening to them in the morning shows. And, uh, you know, we uh, really embrace you and celebrate you for that. And as you said, uh, you look at the Bible. I mean, uh, George Bernard Shaw, after he read the Bible, he said, uh, this book is so pornographic. Put it under lock and keys. Don't let your young daughters and son read them. And now we subsequently, as we did the combat kit and we read through the Bible, we knew exactly what this is all about. And then you find uh, that uh, the story of Koma Luth is there. Uh, and also, you know, if uh, when uh, the people of Lot or Luth disobeyed him, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed a generation. But those people that are perpetrating this uh, new world, this order, they you know, blatantly and flagrantly uh, disobey. The words of God. I mean, this, that's the words of truth. If you're going to do this, this is the punishment, brimstones and what and what came through. But still, because the Bible or the church has been too lenient with these people that were pushing forward or trying to push this agenda. Today, they have closed many churches. They've taken them away. Actually, they've silenced them. They diluted the teachings of the churches. And this is why this, uh, this is coming through in Western countries. Whereas, alhamdulillah, the Muslim with his Quran and the Sunnah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu inshallah we will stand the test of time, Muhammad. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, just in conclusion, I'd like to say that I was watching a clip the other day about this particular individual who was paid two million euros somewhere in, in Europe to go and what punch holes in the Quran. So he was a linguist, he was a professor in linguists and he was able to now go back and, you know, to a lot of homework. So one of the things that he went is to find inconsistencies in the Bible and to go back and to carbon date some of the books that they found and to find out around which year were these books then put together. And his net result was what? And you know what? Even watching this, irrespective of what his net result was, I said to myself, even if he says that the Quran is not the word or not going back 1400 years and even if he says there's 100 inconsistencies even if he says all these things I have total faith and conviction that Allah protects this Quran every day so irrespective but I'm saying this now for the purpose of some people that have any doubts that or some non-Muslims that may be listening after 2 million euros he still he, was, he received the 2 million euros and now he had to present his findings his findings was that the Quran, the carbon dating goes back around 650 AD 
That's, we know, according to Khalif Uthman, it would have happened in 647 AD. So spot on, those were the words of the uh, the Mus'haf of Uthman, radiallahu an, and that the language that was used was the Uthmani um, uh, Qurayshi script, which exists till today, no, inconsisten- no inconsistencies, no discrepancies. This is the haq, this is the truth. So even if they try and, and, and maneuver and collude and find any surreptitious mechanism to discredit the Quran, that is only from shaitan. Because we know at the end of it that what we, have, what we have is the truth, we have yakin and we have complete conviction that Islam is the only way to salvation. And unfortunately, Muslims need to learn that. I know of Muslims that say, especially in the field of Dawah, it's okay to be a Christian because Christianity has goodness amongst it. And, you know, people are going to go, there are some Christians that will go to heaven and they'll find justification. But unfortunately, I'm in this business long enough to know that there's inna dina in the Allah Islam. The only religion to get to Allah is the religion of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, uh, Muhammad. Uh, before I let you go, I, w- I must uh, compliment you on your presentation uh, tonight. Absolutely world class. Allah bless you. Allah keep you. And inshallah, you're going to have a beautiful, lovely evening ahead. And now I can tell you, wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Muhammad. Jazakallah once again to yourself and your beautiful listeners for having tolerated me for an hour. But the hour went so quickly with me. I trust it was the same with all of you. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi Absolutely, uh, Hafiz, uh, attorney Muhammad Kuvadia, saying it like it is, uh, but alhamdulillah, really adding value for this, uh, to this evening's uh, broadcast. Uh, time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.